Good evening. Let's get started with our series in the life of Christ. Going to be looking at a few Gospels tonight. Let's go ahead and start with uh, the first of our uh, lessons, or you might say texts. And we're going we're gonna to begin in Luke uh, chapter 9, a very brief section in Luke. As I've said before, not all the Gospels give the same amount of detail. And we're going to see that definitely being the case tonight. And, um, you know, what is God's reason for that? I believe that God allows for different penmen through inspiration to give not necessarily different uh, points of view of the same story only, although that is true, but also different information. Why rewrite the story four times? Christ instead allowed for, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the same story to be written in, in four different ways, in four different writing styles, with uh, really different pieces of the story found in different ones. So in Luke chapter 9 and verse 7, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, him being Christ. And he was perplexed, because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead. So there were some who were, who were teaching and claiming that Christ was John the Baptist resurrected. Now how could you claim that if John the Baptist and Christ are literally... Six months apart in age, uh, you must not know very much information about either one to make such a claim. Have you noticed that that is exactly how a lot of cults and false religions arise? If you talk to someone and they make claims about God and you think these are such outlandish claims, you ask, how could you believe that? You'll find they don't know much about Scripture. That what they're saying is coming from a point of view of opinions and uh, suppositions, presuppositions, traditions, but not much truth. And so when you have very little truth and a lot of opinion, you're going to end up with all kinds of crazy beliefs. And that was even happening while Christ was alive. How much more is that going to happen today? When someone wants to debate religions, when someone wants to debate uh, philosophy, do not let them debate what they think. Ask this question, what is your source of truth? If they say, well, I'm my source of truth, we'll say, you can't be your source of truth because you change what you believe. You've changed in the last five years. You've changed in the last 15. You'll change in the next five months. So if you are your own source of truth, truth doesn't exist. Uh, absolute truth doesn't exist because if it's you, it's not absolute. What is your source of truth outside of, your source, of yourself? And then... If they get down to a book, which I would hope they do, if they're any kind of evangelical or Christian, they should claim, well, the Bible. Great. Discuss the Bible. And look to the truth of God's word to determine what is right or wrong, and you'll have a much more successful conversation. So these people are confusing even the king because of the little information they have about Christ, the little information they have about John the Baptist. They think literally John the Baptist was killed and then resurrected, and here's Jesus. How they didn't know about Jesus before this time, I don't know. Where were they, hiding under a rock? Jesus has been around for some time now, doing amazing miracles for some time. So in verse number 8, some uh, said that Elias has appeared, and others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John, have I beheaded? But who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. So that's all we have from the book of Luke. Now I'd like you to go to the book of Mark, chapter 6. You're going to find a much bigger story is told here 
in Mark 6. The story of not only what we just read and how Herod was confused about Jesus, but why he was confused and the story of how John the Baptist was beheaded. So this is a pretty famous story. I think that if you've been in church any amount of time, you've heard this story. I'm not going to read through the entire text. But, but beginning in verse 14, you find again, King Herod heard of him, Jesus, that he was, that he said, uh, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. So we know that King Herod hold that, uh, or to, was told, some claim Jesus was resurrected Old Testament prophet. Some say he was a resurrected uh, from Elias. Some say he was resurrected from John the Baptist. Well, we know which one Herod believes because it's said here. Herod believed Jesus resurrected uh, as John the Baptist or from John the Baptist. Now, why would Herod choose that one of all three, the least likely possibility of all three? Could it be that King Herod felt so bad and so guilty about beheading John the Baptist that he was more prone to, in his guilt, think that God was in some way judging him from beheading John the Baptist rather than Jesus being a resurrected Old Testament prophet? What does the book of Proverbs tell us? The guilty flee when what? No man pursues. Exactly right. That those who have done wrong are constantly asking themselves, who knows? What do my parents really know? What does the teacher really know? You know what I've discovered? I've said this before, I think in Wednesday night Bible study, that as a principal, as a teacher, one of my most effective tools to determine what actually happened is to not tell the students what I know, but to ask open-ended questions, and them not knowing what I know, they almost, almost every time tell me more than I knew. Because in their guilt, they assume I know more than I do. In their guilt, they assume that everyone knows what's going on. And so some will lie more to protect what they've already done. But at that point, it's pretty obvious to me when they're lying because I ask more than one, and the stories don't match. Most try to then throw other people under the bus and tell what actually happened so they don't get as, as in trouble. Because, again, the, the guilty flee when no man pursues. I think the guilty assume they are going to be judged or are already being judged. And I think that's what's going on with Herod. His guilt, paired with his lack of knowledge regarding Christ, made the conclusion, well, some say Christ is this, this, or this, or John the Baptist resurrected. He must be John the Baptist resurrected, and in some ways out to get me. And then we hear the story of how John the Baptist was killed. Verse 16, uh, we're told, it is John the Baptist whom I beheaded, risen from the dead. Verse 17, for Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John, bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. All right, John the Baptist, being the man that he was, did not stray from controversial truths. You know, there are some who claim a Christian's job is not to offend. That if you are offending someone, you are not illustrating Christ. That if you are causing offense, you are not representing God. Now, I want to clarify. If you are purposely trying to offend someone, to make them mad, to, ha- to one-up them, well, then I totally agree that's not Christ-like. But here is the truth about truth. Truth offends those who don't believe it. Truth often even offends those who don't follow it. Now, I'm not going to say every time. There's some who don't follow truth, and you can state it, and they could care less because they don't care what you think. But it does often offend those who don't follow that truth. And so to not offend many people, you have to cease speaking truth. 
John the Baptist wasn't that kind of guy. You see, King Herod had seduced or in some way connived or convinced uh, his brother Philip's wife to leave Philip and marry him instead. I would imagine it didn't take much. I mean, Herod's the king. He's got wealth. He's got power. I'm sure Herodias was the kind of woman, it seems to me, who liked wealth and power. So it probably didn't take much convincing. John the Baptist, I don't know why John the Baptist, what was going on uh, in John the Baptist's ministry at this point where he would have addressed this immoral situation, this, this, this uh, unbiblical, un-Jewish thing to do. I don't know why John the Baptist would address it. Was he responding to a question that someone asked, like the Pharisees would try to trip up Jesus, right? And say, well, what do you think about taxing? Is taxing okay? And what do you think about uh, committing adultery and divorce? So it is possible someone was trying to trip up John the Baptist. Hey, John the Baptist, what do you think about Herod taking his brother's wife? Is, what do you, what, is that good? And John the Baptist in his boldness says, no, it's not. I think that's much more likely than John the Baptist creating a message in the town square, pointing a finger at the, at, the, at the palace saying, how dare Herod do that? I'm not saying John the Baptist didn't do that. I think he probably didn't. I think someone was asking questions, someone was implying, and John the Baptist um, didn't back down, stated what was true. Herod heard about it and put him in prison. Now, Herodias, though, was actually a lot more offended than Herod himself. Herod was actually a little concerned of John the Baptist because Herod believed John the Baptist was a man of God. And so he was, he was uh, even fearful and just putting him in prison, didn't want to do anything else with him. But Herodias wanted the man dead. Why? Well, I can only imagine that Herodias, every time she thought of John the Baptist and knew that he was in prison, was reminded of her own greed, leaving her first husband to remarry for nothing else other than power and money. And John the Baptist was a constant reminder, and she wanted the man dead. Maybe she thought when John the Baptist was dead, my guilt would go away. Well, if you've ever experienced a bad decision in your life, you'll realize eliminating the people surrounding that bad decision doesn't eliminate the guilt with the bad decision. So Herodias, you know the story. He tells her daughter uh, when her daughter is given the option of ask for anything in the kingdom that you want, and it will be given to you. The reason that is asked is because in verse 22, the daughter said unto Herodias, uh, came in and danced and pleased Herod in them that sat with him. It is said of many that Herodias' daughter danced in some seductive, erotic way. The Bible does not claim that, so I'm not saying that it's true. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying that has to be assumed. I think the assumption is why would King Herod offer Herodias' daughter, anything in the kingdom if there wasn't in some way sex involved. I guess that's all that the assumption we can make. But I want to state that that's not necessarily required. Uh, she could have just done so well in her performance that King Herod was so proud in his stepdaughter's performance and that you know, she showed off the family pride in front of all of the court that King Herod swelling up with pride for his family because she's now his daughter, right? Swelling up with pride says, hey, way to go. You, you made us look good today. How can I pay you back? I think that's just as viable as an option as her performing an erotic dance that in some way King Herod lost his mind and in lust said, what can I give you? Because there, there is no adultery implied here. 
So that's my thoughts. I don't think it was an erotic dance. I think that she just honored the family. King Herod, in his, in his pride of the family, being, feeling so much pride and feeling so proud, says, what can I do to return the favor that you just gave the court? And so she goes to her mother and says, wow, that's a pretty big, big offer. What do you think? And Herodias, without hesitation, says, John the Baptist's head. That's what we want. <laughs> now, if your daughter was offered anything, there's so many things that could have been given to her to set her up for success. The mother was not thinking of her daughter's future success, was she? The mother was thinking of vengeance, and she was saying, I can use my daughter to gain vengeance on the man I hate, John the Baptist. This is a common theme, by the way, a common theme that parents will use their children to gain vengeance on another. How many children are secluded from grandparents out of some form of vengeance on the parents? It's not because the parent is concerned of how the grandparent might treat the child. There is some hatred. There's some bitterness. And so the child says, you will never see my child. You'll never see your grandchild. And it's, it's not for the safety of the child. It's the hatred of the parent. It's vengeance on the parent. How many spouses through divorce and separation use their children as weapons in their arsenal against the other parents? I would say, in my experience, quite often that happens. Even when they're still married, let alone when they're divorced or separated, even when they're still married, the mom uses the children as a weapon against the father, and the father uses the children as a weapon against the mother. And and obviously, there's many things wrong here. As even as I'm stating that, as I'm clarifying it for you, you can see the issues here, right? Most, and I think the biggest issue, is the pain caused to the child, the trauma caused to the child, because they truly are now used as a weapon wielded by an adult towards another adult. The child may not know that when they're young, but when they're old enough to figure it out, the trauma that they're going to carry with them, the psychological damage, the emotional damage, it may never leave their life. Stop using children to gain vengeance on someone else. Children need to be given the best possible chance for success. Set them up for success and do not, if at all possible, do not allow your child to suffer the consequences of your own bad choices. And do not allow the child to suffer the consequences of the, inter, the, the, the poor unhealthy interpersonal relationships you have with other adults. That's your fault. That's their fault, not the child's fault. So this young lady, who could have been set up for life, instead is used to literally bring about the murder of an innocent man. We never hear about Herodias' daughter again. We don't know her story. I do wonder, does she live with guilt knowing she was part of murder? I do wonder, does she gain bitterness against her mother as she's older, thinking about all the things she could have had, but all she ended up with is, was the head of John the Baptist? That kind of thing doesn't just happen without consequence. <laughs> I'm almost positive this young lady suffered the rest of her life for that, that choice that was forced on her by her mother. So this is what happens. She goes back to Herod. Herod agrees reluctantly. But he did make an honor, a, a commitment of honor, so he follows through in verse 27. Immediately, 
sent an executioner, commanded his head to be brought, and uh, his head was brought in a charger, <laughs> gave it to the damsel. The damsel gave it to the mother. I mean, that alone is traumatic, right? <laughs> so this young lady is given a bloodied head on a, on a platter, and she carries that head to her mother as some kind of trophy. And that is the end of the story for John the Baptist. What a tragic way for a man's life to end. But remember we had talked earlier how John the Baptist was in prison and he knew his life was coming to an end. He sensed it. He was in discouragement, almost depression, if not outright. Remember how we stated John the Baptist questioned his, his faith in the Messiah? Are you truly the one we've been waiting for? I think John the Baptist, without a doubt, knew his time on this earth was done. And I don't know that John the Baptist had any regrets, save for, was it spent for the right person? And once Christ did all those miracles and sent back the followers of John of the Baptist, saying, Show, tell John what you saw today, I think that took care of John's anxiety. I don't think John was concerned about his life ending. I think John wanted to make sure his life meant something. And he had dedicated his adult years to foretelling of the Messiah. And he just wanted to make sure Christ was the Messiah. And that is a great way to view life. Don't be afraid of the end of your life. Be afraid of the waste of a life. And as long as our life had purpose and was used to further God's kingdom to bring him honor and glory, then whether it ends today or 20 years from today, a purposeful life, that's what we need to be shooting for. Let's go to Matthew now. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to read about another very well-known text, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. You know, it's interesting, that phrase, feeding of the 5,000. Do you notice the title? I put 5,000 plus. you know why? Because this feeding of the 5,000, it, it tells us in Matthew chapter 14 that, uh, it, that he actually fed 5,000 uh, men beside women and children. 5,000 men beside women and children. And so it was actually feeding of much more than just 5,000. So we are in Matthew chapter 14. Let's take a look at verse 13. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by a ship into a desert place apart, and the people heard thereof. They followed him out on foot of the cities. Jesus went forth, saw a great multitude, was moved with compassion, healed their sick. So in this story, of course, we know he feeds them. But did you remember he actually healed them first? This is before he even does any kind of speaking. He actually gets away, gets away to reflect on what's going on in the ministry, to find some time and to, to, re, to recuperate and to rest. And yet people follow him like they always do. They follow him because he, they love him? No, they follow him because they love what he can give them. It wasn't even really a sincere connection that they have with Christ. They, they, it's not like they were family who said, what can we do to serve you? They were, they were moochers saying, what can you do to serve us? And yet Christ still had compassion on them. You know, I understand how hard it is to parent children. You want to talk about moochers. I mean, children are moochers. Children want something from parents almost constantly. And you can never fill that void for a child, not at least long term. There will be something else sooner than later that else that they want. And yet, 
we do this for our kids. Why? Because we love our kids. But it does help to know that, that aside from all the mooching and aside from all the asking and mommy and daddy, can I, can I, can I, we also know they love us. So that makes it easier, right? We can, we can put up with all the mooching because of the love that we share with them. Can you imagine someone else's child living in your home who did not love you treating you the way your child treated you? How would that go for you? Would you be nearly as patient? Would you be nearly as kind, as giving? Would you return love to them that they have not given to you and all they want is something from you all the time? Now that is the love of Christ. You think, oh, I got the love of Christ. Look how I treat my children. Yeah, but your children love you. These people didn't really love Christ. Love people the same way you love your children who love you. Now you're reflecting the love of Christ. These people are here because of what Christ can do, and he does. He heals them. And then the apostles say, hey, let's send them back so they can eat. This is where Christ says in verse 16, they don't need to depart. They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. They say unto him, we have here but five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them hither to me. Now, of course, in another text, we know that the five loaves, two fish, uh, where did the apostles get those? Right? We know there's a young boy, and he has these. And, and uh, we're also told in another text that Christ makes this statement do something about it, we're told to test them. Christ can fix the problem. Christ didn't need the apostles to fix the problem. Christ didn't need the apostles to bring the young boy. Christ didn't even need the the loaves or the fish. Christ could have done everything on his own without anyone's help. Christ is giving them a chance to learn a lesson. Unfortunately, I'm not convinced they've learned this lesson. It is interesting how often Christ teaches similar lessons to the apostles over the space of three years, and yet they still don't seem to get it. Not until his death, resurrection, and ascension do they finally get it. (laughs) Three years of lessons unlearned. You ever feel that way? You've been trying to teach someone in your life, a child, maybe there's a friend you're mentoring, or someone else you're trying to work with, and lessons you've been trying to help them with for years, and they just don't get it. Well, don't worry, you're not alone. Christ had the same problem. So Christ is trying to give them a chance to learn. Christ is is trying to test their faith. He says, feed them. We don't have what is needed to feed them. Christ, in verse 19, has them sit down, takes the loaves, the fish. He blesses them, prays over them, and then gave the loaves to his disciples and to the multitude, and they did eat. And we're told that there was so much food given, 5,000-plus women and children. Look at verse 21. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. So, I mean, look, in my experience, there's more women than men at almost any given worship service. I would be shocked if, if that was far off in this case. So I would say easily, easily 10,000 plus people. Because there were, even if there was a woman for every man in this case, there's still children too. So 10,000 plus people that Christ is feeding here. Now, if Christ was feeding that many, is he just making a bunch of food, piles of food, and then the apostles are distributing it? It says he's making it or tearing it and then handing it to the apostles. How would Christ know when 10,000-plus people have had enough? Look, I've planned multiple events with teenagers and adults alike. Uh, I've done ministry food. I've done picnics. I've done personal. It is very hard to guesstimate how much food you need for 15, for 20, for 30 people. The more people you have, usually the more leftovers you have because most people overestimate. Most people don't want less food than there is people. 
So you either, either you usually overestimate. And yet Christ, with 10,000, what was left? We're told uh, in verse 20, 12 baskets full. Now, that's a lot of food. But is that a lot of food when you think about 12,000 people needing to eat? That's 12 plus, in my opinion, 10 plus easily. That's not a lot of food left over. Christ could have made it that there was, a, there was no food left over whatsoever. That the last person who ate, when they were done, the food was gone. He could have done that. Why would Christ have left over? Why 12 baskets left over? We're not given all the details. Was there only 12 baskets available? Is this one of those scenarios where in the Old Testament we find the prophet telling the widow, uh, go out and find pots because Christ, God's going to do a miracle. And she gets pots and then oil is poured into a pot. And there's as much oil as there is pots. And when the pots are gone, the oil stops. Is that the case here? Was there only so many baskets left? And when the baskets were gone, that was all the leftovers? We don't know. It, I, I would say it's very interesting, though, how Christ was so close to the exact amount needed. Twelve baskets is not much left over when it comes to 10,000-plus people. And whether it was Christ only gave as much leftovers as there was baskets or whether it was Christ wanted the people to realize that there was leftover above and beyond even the need of 10,000-plus, whether it was Christ was planning ahead for the apostles and the hundred or so followers as I'm doing this miracle, not only will I provide for them, but I'm going to have enough food that you guys can eat later tonight yourselves because they've been serving. And maybe this food was for the apostles. Maybe it's for tomorrow, and I'm going to make sure you guys have food tomorrow. I don't know. There's a variety of options here. But whatever option you look at, Christ was pretty close to the exact need of the crowd. And I'm pretty convinced that these baskets were not for the crowd, but for the apostles to take with them. Isn't that just the way of our God? Pretty amazing how God can see the need, provide the need, and whatever's extra for, for his own purpose. But there was not anyone in that crowd, including a child or a teenager, which that itself is a miracle, who was left hungry when he was done. These apostles, these followers, had just experienced one of the most amazing miracles. And then they get in a ship. We're told that uh, he puts them in the ship. In verse 22, straightway, immediately, Jesus constrained, forced his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Finally. Finally alone. The apostles, not wanting to be away from Christ, wanting to be with him, were forced onto a ship. They're already tired. They might have eaten by now. I would imagine if they didn't eat when they were serving it, they probably were eating on the ship in awe and wonder of what they just experienced. So I don't know that they're hungry right now, but they are for sure tired. They get in the ship wondering why Jesus left them, wondering when they're going to see him again. How will they meet back up with him? There was no cell phones. There was no, I'll meet you at this location. He just said, get in the ship, go to the other side. He didn't tell them any rendezvous point. These are grown men. It's not like they can't handle themselves on their own, but they probably were wondering what's the next step. God, what do you have for me next? You ever been there? God has just done an amazing thing in your life. It was very obvious that you just experienced God. That there is no doubt 
God was involved in what just took place. And then when it's done and you come off of that emotional, spiritual high, you say, now what? And God doesn't give you an answer. Where do I go from here? And God doesn't give you an answer. You begin to get a little discouraged, almost immediate discouragement right after extreme emotional high. I think that's what the apostles are going through. Immediate discouragement. Now what? Where are we supposed to go? We're tired, and now we have to row on top of being tired. He didn't even give them the option of camp out here on the beach and let's go the next day. No, it's get in the ship and now row to the other side. Christ rests. And while he's resting apart from them, we're told in verse 24, the ship was now in the midst of the sea, almost kind of like the middle. It wasn't near the shore where it could just drift to the shore quickly. Tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. So the wind was not pushing the ship in the direction. The, the waves were beating the ship, and the wind was not helping the ship go in the direction that it, would be, that it should go. Uh, so these apostles are basically doing whatever they can to stay afloat. We're told, on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. This would be late at night. Late at night, Jesus comes walking. So, of course, you know the story. The disciples see him, and in verse 26, they are troubled. They're concerned. They're anxious. What do they think? They think they see a ghost. These are grown men. How is it that grown men are assuming automatically it's a ghost? Well, how else can you describe a walking figure on the ocean, on the sea? Well, if you know Christ, then there's Christ as an option, right? After seeing all the things Christ has done, how is it that their minds went to ghost rather than Christ? Could it be the, the superstitious nature of the sailors, of the four fishermen, Peter, James, John, you know, those, you know, those guys? Could it be that their superstition was catching amongst the other apostles? Could it be that in their discouragement, in, in their tiredness, they had lost sight of logic? Could it be that it's just irony that sometimes even adult-grown men are afraid of the dark? And adult-grown men sometimes, when, when they are heading uh, through the house to lock a door, there's a loud noise, they jump. Could it just be irony that you've seen those videos where the kids try to scare their dad and they tie a fake mouse to a string and run it across the floor and the dad jumps up and screams like a little middle school girl onto the table? Could it be that adult men aren't as courageous as they claim to be? And these men, it doesn't say they screamed, but I wonder if there was some squealing going on in the ship. I wonder if there was some whimpering. I wonder if there was some hiding, uh, some spine tingling as they saw what they thought was a ghost. So they think this is a spirit. Where We are told they cried out with fear. That doesn't necessarily mean like screaming, but, ah, you know, there is something, something like that at least. Or, whoa, who are you, right? Verse 27, but straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. I'd like you to turn now to the book of John. John gives the same story, but I want to read the text from here. John chapter 6 and verse 15. Let's actually scoot down to uh, verse 18. And the sea arose by, season of a great, by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five 
and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking, drawing nigh, and they were afraid. But he saith to them, Be it is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Now there is a big piece of that story missing, isn't there? In fact, it's up here on the screen. Why is it that John does not mention the story of Peter? I don't know. I feel like if you're going to tell this story of Christ and the storm, why would you miss the spot where Peter asks to get out of the boat? Now turn to Mark chapter 6 and verse 45. Straightway he constrained the disciples. We see that. Evening was come, verse 47. The ship was in the midst of the sea. We've seen that. Saw them toiling, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea. Now here's something that is also not mentioned in the other two books. And would have passed by them. Christ was going to walk by them if they did not Hail him out. Call out to him. If the apostles had not questioned who are you, what are you, he was going to walk right by. How many times has God, in a sense, walked by us? Now, God says he never leaves us nor forsakes us. I'm not saying how many times has God forsaken you because that answer is zero times. I'm saying, how many times did God intend to do an amazing thing with you and through you? How many times in our lives was God intending to use us? How many times did God want to bring a miracle in our lives, and yet we didn't call out to him? We didn't take advantage of that opportunity, and that opportunity kept going. Missed. We get this idea of missed opportunities, right? We experience this all the time. I think many adults have regrets of missed opportunities from their teen years, from their college years, from their young adult years, from their young married years. Missed opportunities, we see them. We see them for what they were. Well, there's also missed opportunities spiritually. Times where amazing things could have been done, and yet we didn't call out to God. We didn't, we didn't ask for God to remain. We didn't ask for God to use us. As Peter says, let me get out of the boat. That was not requested. And the opportunity, spiritual opportunity, was missed. So verse 50 of, of Mark 6, they, were, they saw him, were troubled. Immediately he talked with them, says, be of good cheer, it is I. He went unto them in the ship, and the wind ceased. So again, Mark does not mention Peter. So now let's go to Matthew chapter 14, the only book that includes the story of Peter in this text. So Jesus says, be it is I, be of good cheer, verse 27 of Matthew chapter 14. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Did you catch that? If it is you. So Peter is still unsure that this is Christ. Now that's interesting that Peter, unsure it's Christ, is actually willing to get out of the boat when this apparition, as far as Peter's concerned, this spirit, this ghost, says, yes, it's me, get out. I mean, if you really thought it was a ghost, would you trust it? If you thought it was some demonic apparition, would you trust it? But Peter's saying, if it's you, let me get out of the ship. That's interesting. It takes a lot of courage just to even make that statement and step out immediately. And so Jesus says in verse 29, come. Peter comes down out of the ship, 
walks on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Now, you've heard messages taught on the one who really lacked faith wasn't Peter. It was the 11 still in the ship, right? You've heard that, that yes, Peter lost faith, but he had more faith than, the, than those who remained. And I would agree. That's a, that's a great statement. It's a great truth and has been preached many times. I have no intention of preaching that truth again to you tonight. What I want to point out is Peter did have faith to get out, yes. But Peter lost his faith, which is obvious. But what is subtle is where was God when Peter lost his faith? Right Christ didn't kick Peter in the face and walk by him and say, swim back to the boat. You have, you, have, you have no faith? Get back in the boat. Make some effort. Come on. Put your back into it. As soon as Peter lost faith, what did he do? He began to sink. You know how that feels, right? <laughs> when you start to get discouraged and lose faith in God, there's a sinking feeling like, wow, is my life meaning anything? Am, am I even serving God? Does God even love me? And you get the sinking feeling in your, in your stomach, in your heart, emotionally, spiritually. And I can tell you this. As soon as you lose faith, I, I promise you this, God is there. Now, we're told that uh, Christ does reprimand Peter, of course. We're going to see that in a little bit. But verse 30, he was afraid, began to sink, cried, saying, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and then talks. Peter didn't grab on to Jesus. Jesus took hold of Peter. And Jesus did that in response not to Peter's faith. He was losing it. In response to the request of a man who had lost his faith, Christ reaches out and pulls him up. That's the God that I serve. That's the God that you serve. I think we as Christians are like chickens. You ever own chickens? Anyone here own, own chickens before? No? Let me open up your eyes to chickens. They are nasty cruel, vicious little creatures. I know that the, you think they're cute when they're, when they're chickens and, and when they're little chickadees, and they are cute. But chickens, if you've ever owned them, you will know that they don't, do, they don't play nice with another chicken when that chicken is wounded. So I grew up with chickens, goats, cats, dogs, chickens, horses. We had, a lot. We had, we had almost all of it. We, we were like a little miniature farm. And not on a daily basis, but on a fairly regular basis. I'd go outside because we'd collect the eggs of the chickens. And on the ground was tufts of skin and feathers. And then a very beat up, half-eaten carcass of a dead chicken. We have dogs. And these dogs would eat the chicken at any given moment. But it was not the dog. These chickens were safe in their chicken coop. There was no fox or weasel that got in there. It was the other chickens. What happens with chickens is when one is injured, the other ones will peck at it. 
And then once one starts pecking at it, the others get in a frenzy, and it is a feeding frenzy on the injured chicken. At that point, there is no escape. The chicken dies. I would imagine a very horrible, painful death to be pecked apart by what was once your fellow chicken friends. You see, we put the chickens in a coop to protect them from the dogs, but we could not protect the chickens from each other. And for many chickens, their demise was each other, at least in my experience on what was our small farm, that was the case. How many times is that the case for Christians in churches? We think the church is a place of safety, and it should be from the wolves, from those who would attack God's people and and hurt God's people. And a church is a place of sanctuary. And it should be. But you know what you can't protect Christians from? Our other Christians (laughs) in the same sanctuary. And unfortunately, you find yourself in the wrong coop. You get injured. It's over. You will be taken out. What a shame. We're like chickens, aren't we? Shouldn't be, but we are. Not Christ, though. You see, you can be chicken-like or you can be Christ-like. Because Christ didn't kick Peter. Christ didn't push Peter underwater. Christ didn't pass by Peter and say, if you can get back to the boat, I'll, I'll be there waiting for you. I hope you make it. Christ reached out and caught Peter and put him back in the boat. That's Christ. Can you be Christ to those who are hurting? Can you be Christ to those Christians who've lost their faith, who've lost their way? I'm not saying to enable their sin. I'm not saying to pat them on the back and say, you keep doing what you want. You keep self-destructing. No. What did Peter do? Peter caught out and said, Lord, save me. And Christ was there to save. Peter did not swear at Christ and curse at Christ, and, and, and Christ didn't enable Peter's sin. Christ rescued Peter from his sin. <laughs> we need to be rescuers not attackers. Christ-like, not chicken-like. I love this story because I think that for a lot of Christians, they believe that when someone shows any evidence of weak faith, that it is like the scarlet letter. Anathema. We can't talk to them. We can't be with them. They don't have faith. I have have more faith than them, and if I'm around them, their lack of faith will rub off on me or make me look bad or make God look bad. These are the people God is seeking to rescue. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the drowning Peter. These are the ones Christ is after. These are not the ones we kick. These are the ones we help. Christ does deal with Peter's lack of faith. He does say in verse 31, O thou of little faith, where didst thou doubt? He doesn't ignore it. But do you notice even in his addressing it, it it seems very compassionate to me. It doesn't seem offensive to me. It doesn't seem like he was belittling Peter or, or seeking to hurt Peter further. He was trying to help Peter recognize, Peter, you could have trusted me. I was there for you. Like a father to a child, not slapping Peter and saying, get with the program, but saying, hey, you could have trusted me all the way through. I, I never left you. And you notice also, Christ didn't overdo it. <laughs> A simple, short statement paired with the love he already showed. That's all it took. 
I guarantee you, I knew what Peter was thinking about the rest of that boat ride back to shore. Thinking, you know, I could have trusted Christ. I should have trusted Christ. When you help someone, I'm not saying you can't or shouldn't give verbal truths, but don't overdo it. I think quite often less is more. And that is how I try to operate when I talk with students at our school, talk with kids, teenagers. Because at some point, your help becomes a hindrance when you overspeak it. When you're trying to give someone some correction, when you're trying to talk through a problem with them, if you turn what should be a five-minute conversation into 45 minutes, you are now part of the problem. You are hindering their growth because now they're just annoyed with you. You're distracting them from the success because now they think that you just are a busybody because you won't shut up. So follow Christ's example. Compassionate. Yes, he does correct. But he's succinct. Only says what needs to be said. And let his actions say the rest. Christian, say what you got to say. Make sure you got to say it. But let your actions say the rest. Don't let words fill in the gaps. Let actions fill in the gaps and speak the words only necessary to speak. We have one more text I want to see tonight. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 22. This is a large text. I'm not going to be reading all of this, but it is, it is the rest of this chapter. So beginning in verse 22, uh, this is after the situation of um, walking on the water and rescuing Peter. Then verse 22, the day following, so the next day, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat uh, there, save that one whereunto his disciples entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone, uh, they were wondering, well, then if Jesus didn't get in the boat, he must still be over here. But they figured out, okay, he's not. So uh, verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, what did they do? They went to the other side, found Jesus, verse 25, on the other side. And they said, how did you get here? We saw the boat the disciples got on. You weren't there. No other boats left the shore. We counted them. We were watching. And yet here you are. How did you get here? Verse 26, Jesus says, Seek, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Right? That's what I said earlier. These people are not following Christ because they love him. They follow him because of what he can give them. He says, verse 27, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth. Hey, don't follow me because I can feed your bellies. Follow me because I can fill your soul. Follow me because of what I can do for you spiritually, not physically. Then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? All right, so again, God, if, you know, Christ, if that's what you say, then what are you asking of us? What do you want us to do? This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. What does Christ want from everyone? Faith. He wants a relationship. He's saying, stop following me because I feed you. Okay. Why should we follow you? Follow you because... I can fill you spiritually. Okay. How does that happen? What exactly are we supposed to do? And what does he say? Believe on me. So isn't that a great truth? We are not filled spiritually because of what we do in the church. 
We're not filled spiritually because of all the acts of service and works that we do in the name of Christ. We are filled spiritually because of the connection we have with God himself. We are filled spiritually because of our faith in Christ. The works we do are an outpouring of the fulfilling we already have. If you are trying to fill up your spiritual life by helping out with life group, with Bible studies, with children's church, with the worship team, if you're trying to fill up your life with acts of service, you're doing it wrong. You got it backwards. There is no filling your life through works. Christ fills your life. It is a relationship that fills your life. Think of a healthy friendship or a healthy marriage. You do not serve your spouse or your friend to be fulfilled in that relationship. You serve them because you are fulfilled in that relationship. That's how it's supposed to look. Ask a spouse who's married to someone and the marriage is not going well. You ask them, well, what do you do at home? Do you do work at home? And they'll tell you, I have done so many things. I have tried so many times. Do the dishes, keep the house clean, cook the meals. The, the husband will say, I've tried so much, you know, uh, making sure the family's fed and doing whatever I can. I just cannot please them. Ask someone. They'll tell you. Works do not create a healthy relationship. Connection. A soul connection is what creates a healthy working relationship or a healthy family, marriage. And then the works you do are a consequence, are an outpouring of what's already there. I don't take care of my family to be fulfilled. I take care of my family because I am fulfilled and I have more to give and I give it to them. I don't do things for my wife because I, I'm trying to fill a void emotionally or romantically. No, my wife fills that for me in the relationship I have with her. And the things I do for her is because she's filled that void for me. That's our relationship with Christ. Do you have it? Or are you, like these people, thinking, what should we do to be fulfilled? Christ says, do nothing. Connect with me to be fulfilled. Believe in me to be fulfilled. What a great, amazing truth. Verse 32. Well, verse 31, they say, hey, our fathers ate manna, and uh, he gave them bread from heaven. <laughs> Why are they saying that? Well, if you look at verse 30, they say, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe? Wait a second. Aren't these the same people that were the other side of, of the sea? Aren't they the ones who were just healed and fed 10,000-plus people, 5,000 men plus women and children? Didn't they already see amazing things? Now Christ is saying, if you want to be fulfilled, believe in me. And they're saying, all right, prove us, prove to us that we should believe in you. What more proof do you want than they just saw the day before? You see, people like this, there's never enough proof, is there? They always want more. Skeptics. They said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. What bread? Well, Christ says, verse 33, the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Hey, God has bread for you today, too. They talked about, well, we saw you know, our, our ancestors Forefathers, they saw great miracles. They saw manna from heaven. Show us something like that so we can believe you're of God. And God says, or Christ says, well, God has given you bread today. God has given you bread similar to manna. And they say, really, where is it? We don't see this manna. What is Christ saying? I'm the manna. <laughs> That's me. I'm the one. 
He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Verse 41, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Christ says, I'm the manna. I'm the miracle of God. Just as your forefathers received a miracle in the form of a manna, you are receiving the miracle in the form of God's gift to you through me. I'm the gift. They started murmuring. And they said, wait a second, isn't this just so Joseph's son, right? Don't we know this guy? Don't we know his mom and his dad? How is it that he say, I came down from heaven? Jesus answered, murmur not among yourselves. No one can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise up, I will raise him up at the last day. Now, there are those who believe that the, the only ones who can be saved are the ones that God chooses to be saved. And they would use this verse to prove that. They would say, if God hasn't chosen you to be saved, you will not be saved. I actually agree with that. But you know where I disagree? They would then go on to say, God has only chosen some to be saved. So only some will be saved. Whereas I believe... It is not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I believe very strongly from God's word that God draws all men to him. They, none of us would be saved if God didn't draw us to him. God draws us all to him. But just because he draws us to him doesn't mean he forces us to that final step of faith. God draws us to him and then allows us to choose. But we wouldn't even have the chance to choose if God didn't draw us to him. In our sinful state, we would not choose God if he did not first choose us. I believe that. But I also believe God has called all. God has chosen all. But not all have chosen God. So that's hopefully an explanation for this verse if it has caused you any confusion in the past or tonight. He says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And then we find, uh, I'm sorry, that was in verse uh, 37. We're, we're, down, we're down more. Verse 44, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent uh, draw him. As it is written in the prophets, verse 45, and they shall be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and learned of the Father cometh unto me. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. As I said, I'm not going to read all these verses. We don't have enough time. I'm skipping through them. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Verse 52, the Jews thereof strove among themselves, argued, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because what does he say in verse 51? I will give it, uh, the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. All right. He's not saying, I'm giving my flesh so that you will literally eat it. I do realize in verse 53, he says, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life. But he's not saying be cannibals, obviously. He's saying if you do not consume the sacrifice that I am giving, and con consumption isn't always physical through the mouth, right? Can you consume things with your eyes? Can you consume things emotionally? Can we not consume emotionally from others? Can we not consume spiritually, <laughs> right? So consumption does not require you putting something in your mouth, in this case, the consumption, although he does say eat, I think he's referring to consumption here, obviously. It's not a physical eating. Is it a spiritual consumption? Do you, if you do not consume spiritually the sacrifice that God has offered on the cross, in faith, trusting in him, 
then you cannot be saved. Well, verse 59, these things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many thereof of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? When Jesus knew himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, doth this offend you? And this is where we started tonight. A lot of Christians are afraid to offend people. Don't offend purposely, but know this, truth does offend. People will be offended by truth. Christ doesn't change truth so that they're not offended. Verse 64, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Crowds of people, many, reject Christ at this moment. Christ then turns to the 12 and says, will you go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. This is where Christ says, I've chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil. And verse 71 clarifies for us, speaking of Judas Iscariot. See, Peter and the apostles, they understood what Christ is saying. When Christ says, just as your forefathers had manna, a gift from God, a miracle from God, I am the gift, I am the miracle. They consumed it to stay alive physically. You must consume my sacrifice to live eternally in a spiritual sense. The apostles got it. At least 11 of them did, right? They understood it. See, I think often the world must think we're crazy listening to us. The world must, when they come in uh, to church and have never had experience before anything spiritual, they must think that we're, we're a bunch of uh, psychos. How much more now with Facebook and social media and the world getting glimpses, parts of messages, not even hearing the whole context and hearing parts of it and saying, how crazy are these people? Well, of course it sounds crazy to them because they're thinking of everything literally. They're not willing to understand that just as even in a secular sense outside the church, there are other ways to consider truths, not just the literal sense. That even in Christian circles, we also have that option. And so let's not be afraid of offending people with truth. Let's make sure we try to clarify that truth as best we can. But in the end, even if clarifying, there will still be some who will be offended. It is not your responsibility to keep them from being offended. It is your responsibility to give the truth clearly and to let your actions fill in gaps. Thank you for joining us tonight. We will not have Bible study next Wednesday because next Wednesday we're holding our adventure youth camp from Monday to Thursday, 5.30 to 7.30. We've already got some folks that are starting to sign up, and uh, we're hoping to have this room filled with kids so uh, you're welcome to come help us with that event. If you have not signed up already, do so in the lobby. And then the Wednesday after that, I will be out of town, so we're not going to have Bible study the next two weeks. I'll be on vacation. We'll pick back up towards the end of this month, so two weeks off from our Wednesday night Bible study. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.